Good afternoon, everyone. Would you ever see a Pure Life truck drive into Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City and have Patrick Mahomes spray down fans with a Pure Life branded super soaker as part of a touchdown celebration? As you can see, our solid financial results are uh, pretty, pretty strong. Or have zombies replaced the offensive line for one down? My guess is no, but you can in WWE. As a result of the global demand of all things WWE. That the battle for Raw's Rhea rights will be intense and fun. We are raising our guidance. Adjusted Olivida is now expected to be within a range of $305 million to $315 million. Uh, are focused on young athletes who may not at this moment in time be in the quote-unquote wrestling space. Great success means great profit. Mediocre success still means profit. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, November the 7th, 2021. So today on the program, we'll be talking about the WWE Q3 earnings report and conference call. All the news that came out of that, we'll be playing some audio clips from the true superstar of WWE, Nick Khan the president and chief revenue officer. All the talk about media, the Rio rights, the Hulu rights, the outlook, the usual masterclass of media economics that that Nick Khan always gives on the the, uh, conference call and quarterly earnings. And then, just after the conference call came to an end, there were some 15 talents, 17, 18, something like that, talent released by WWE. And then just when I thought I was safe, and it was all over on Friday morning, an email came out saying, no, the number four executive in the company, Christina Salem, the chief financial officer, has left the company, being replaced by board member Frank Riddick. So we'll talk about all that today, maybe touch on a few other things, maybe some fast nationals. But first, joining us from my south, immediate south, is Chris Gullo. I feel like we just did this. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here on a... Uh... <laughs> Sunday morning after a show, we were both on Excite Wrestling yesterday, and uh, you know uh, we got an out. We gained an hour. Uh, yes, so we got home an hour sooner than expected. <laughs> I thought that uh, fall for some reason. I got it in my head that fall back means that you lose an hour, and I thought, oh my god, we uh, we have to do this this podcast in the morning, and uh, and we we're we're going to lose an hour of sleep, but not the case. We gained an hour of sleep, which is good. <laughs> Because uh, I got home at about 1 a.m. You got home even later than that. And uh, as you can see, as people can see on video, I have I've had my face gouged here. I was uh, I was in a, in a in a scramble. Not 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 uh, not like it was this big long grueling match that was a one on one match or anything. Uh, but I was in a scramble in, in, with uh, including among others uh, Mark Sterling. Yeah, it was uh, overall it was a fun show. Sold out crowd. They were. Uh... <laughs> Hanging from the rafters there in, in the X, which is in the uh, Oakdale Mall in Johnson City, right outside of Binghamton. Uh, and People were hanging from the rafters in the mall outlet. People were lined up at the Cinnabon going around the block. It was a <laughs> tremendous business. So this is our first ever episode for the Post Wrestling Network. A huge deal. 
or WrestleNomics. If you're listening to this podcast on the WrestleNomics feed, you know that this podcast will continue to exist and be uploaded and be available for you on the WrestleNomics podcast feed. But we will now also be uh, having this podcast on the post-wrestling feed along with all of post-wrestling's podcasts, including their post uh, their post-raw show and uh, their post-pay-per-view shows and uh, things like the long and winding Royal Road with WH Park uh, and things of that nature. So we're very excited about that. Um, I just did a talk with John Pollock for Post Wrestling on Friday. We did that. That's uh, on their podcast feed and on YouTube. We'll go into some more depth, though, today. Um, but yes, we're very excited. As uh, pe- people may, may or may not have seen the live announcement and press release that was uh, disclosed on the the most recent post raw show with John and Way, um, the international landmark agreement has been completed, and and this is the result. They get us strategic and you, partnership. Yes, I I googled um, press release cliches, and uh, that was key <laughs> to the to that creative uh, effort. So. What is, uh, we should talk about what WrestleNomics is for any new listeners who may be yes. listening here today. Uh, what is WrestleNomics? And why does WrestleNomics matter? Why does it matter? Do ratings matter, Chris Gullo? They do. No. People in my Twitter tell me ratings don't matter. What about streaming? Nobody has that cable matters. anymore. What about streaming, though? People, I, sometimes I just watch the clips on YouTube, though. Why do, we care, thing, why do we care about ratings? Here's the thing, Brandon. It all matters, but we care about ratings because TV rights deals are huge, huge, huge money. Oh, okay. Well, but why they they get money for being on TV? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, the the networks pay them money to what? present them a program weekly. But but in in all the wrestling history documentaries that I've seen, they're always talking about butts and seats and selling tickets and and maybe even T-shirts and stuff. That's what the wrestling business is all about. It's all about drawing tickets, right? Uh, the live event ticket sales are just a fraction of what TV rights deals can bring to a wrestling company or sports entertainment company. Media company. Marvel-like yeah, company. entity, whatever you might be. Um, very good. You got to be feel- asleep. <laughs> yes. yes. You've, you've learned well here. Um, yeah. No, the, the, the wrestling business... So a quick introductory lecture on the wrestling business. The wrestling business has really been turned on its head. Uh, this is what George Berrios, the former CFO of WWE, taught me. Um, n- not not directly, uh, but but through his many conference appearances. Um, this is a wrestling business that used to be majorly a ticketing business and and also a pay per view business. And uh, you know, if you watch some old wrestling from from the territory days where they're recording their TV show in a studio, it's a very uh, low expense production, right? It's in a studio in front of a f- maybe a hundred people. Um, it's in a small area, right? The, the expense is pretty low. And to have that TV show be on the air, the, the wrestling company might even be paying the networks something to be there. It's essentially an infomercial to promote the, the, the events that they were promoting on, on the program by shooting angles and things like that. So you would not necessarily see the big matches on TV. You would see the big matches if you paid for a ticket and you attended the the house show. Pay-per-view came in and changed that a bit and made it a little bit more of a media business. And when we say media, 
I think it's just sort of a highfalutin way to say video. That's I mean, if you just think about it that way. That's that's a, a effective way to think about it. It's be- wrestling has become a media business. It's become a video business. Whether that's live, it's major majorly a live video, live media business. That's what's by far the most valuable piece. Um, but anyway, over time, especially. I would have to look back at the uh, the financial records that we have disclosed from WWE, but shortly after the Attitude Era or so, the TV business becomes more and more lucrative for them. Uh, they're getting more and more money from being on TV. And now we're at the point today where WWE, which is the company that we know the most about because they're a publicly traded company and they disclose some information every quarter, which we're going to talk about today. Um, and now, just in the U.S., not not to mention the rest of the world, they're getting uh, four and five million dollars for for Raw and SmackDown, respectively, uh, every time those programs are on the air, uh, which is far more than they make you know, for selling tickets at live events. Even now, you know, in, in this this uh, semi post pandemic era, um, and it's a lot more than they make on their other area consumer products, which you could kind of think about as merchandise, but it's licensing in a lot of other categories too. Um, so there's that it's the, that sort of the habits and the tendencies of wrestling are built up to be TV, TV promotes pay-per-view or, or house show. And, and the economics of that have really shifted. So it's, it's, it, it doesn't work that way, but all the habits and tendencies and and the structure of, of the U.S. wrestling business in terms of what the, the, the audience expects and how the creative is normally structured, all, all of that is sort of discombobulated by this, but but whatever bookers are adjusting. Uh, and, and I guess that's why we see certain things in like AEW where they, they do their sort of peak dynamite episodes, whether it's like Winter is Coming or Blood and Guts, where it, it makes more sense now to have these sort of peak weekly TV episodes. W not quite doing that as much, but maybe that's something they'll do in the future or who knows. Um, but yeah, the, the business has really changed in terms of where the money comes from in WWE's case too. Um, I, I think there's a preponderance of evidence to show that from 2016 to 2020, at least, uh, every one of those years, there's ample evidence to support that W's popularity diminished over that time, at least with, with fans, with consumers. Um, but also over that time, because of the nature of their media rights contracts, WWE made more money over that time. Um, they, because of their guaranteed TV rights fees. So even if Raw and SmackDown ratings are down, in the short term, that doesn't matter. They're going to get paid the same. If Raw does a terrible rating, they're going to get paid the same. They're not even like AEW or some other companies that get an ad revenue share. They don't get any of that. It's all guaranteed and it's all very predictable money for them. Um, so it's, it's all very predictable and, um, more and more of W's money. And this is the case for AEW too, comes from not directly from consumers and in, in, in terms of ticket sales or pay-per-view sales, especially in the case of W where their pay-per-views are not even primarily consumed through pay-per-view anymore. As people know, they're consumed through streaming. Less and less of that money that WWE or AEW make is from fans. That is tickets and merchandise. And, and AEW does get 
money directly from consumers in, in terms of pay-per-view sales because they're, they're still more so in the pay-per-view business. But more and more, uh, the, the majority already, vast majority, I would say, maybe like, I think for, for AEW, I would, I would guess around 80% uh, for WWE, m- maybe some similar percentage comes from business partners, comes from TV companies like NBC Universal, which is the parent company of USA, Fox, which airs uh, SmackDown, WWE's various TV broadcasters around the world, including Sony in India, including BT Sport in the United Kingdom. Uh, in, in AEW's case, that's Turner slash Warner Media, which of course is the parent company of TNT and TBS, um, and uh, and AEW's TV partner in the UK, IT, ITV. Um, are there others that are obvious that I'm that I'm leaving out? The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia giving WWE fifty million dollars every time WWE goes to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um. So it's, it's very much a, a business partner driven business and the immediate effects of whether or not your product is popular are, I, I, I think are quite delayed, um, because of that, this sort of delayed effect from the, the money doesn't come directly from consumers. It comes from business partners. Um, and one reason why business partners have become so important, at least on the TV side is that, um, I think what's happened is wrestling companies, wrestling programs are now being, you could say more appropriately valued relative to their popularity because there is cord cutting happening and because the, the cable bundle is on the decline. Cable subscriptions and satellite TV subscriptions are on the decline. Even though they are on the decline, these businesses are still very profitable. And this is something that TV networks, satellite networks need, need to work out in terms of how are they going to uh, survive as a business in the decades to come when this business which is still quite profitable is declining. And one, one thing that they're doing to respond to that is they're holding on tighter to their most popular programs. And guess who's among the most popular programs on TV? Even though, yes, their TV ratings are down tremendously from prior eras, wrestling, including WWE and, and including AEW, um, are some of the most popular programs, especially within the 18 to 49 demographic on all of us television. And I imagine that's similar in other geographies as well. I would just add that, you know, I'm actually glad you brought up that last point. What what people don't realize, and I think the common wrestling fan, that may not really know WrestleNomics or understand it or go on Twitter or whatever, just thinks, Oh, well those ratings they did in the attitude era, they must've made their most money. It was a completely different landscape then. And, you know, do AEW, especially those two, being a live product that you have to pretty much watch live to know what happens or it's all going to be over the Internet is extremely beneficial to TV companies and networks to get that because we live in the world of Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime where some people don't have to like be at their couch at Tuesday at nine o'clock to watch a scripted series. They're like, Oh, I'll watch it tomorrow during lunch at work or whatever it may be, because that's something there's not going to be a lot. You, you can wait on that, but you can't really wait on a live sports program or live wrestling program. Live it's, is very important. Yeah. It makes it so beneficial. And, and, and I, I just don't think people kind of realize that. Yeah. The attitude error ratings were great, but Derby was not 
the top most popular stuff, even with those ratings. We lived in the world of Friends and Seinfeld and South Park and so much more. And he's putting a chart on the screen for people who are watching on video, just showing that here's the fiscal year of 1999 and 2000, where this is adjusted for inflation in, into modern U.S. dollars. In modern U.S. dollars, they made 91 and $93 in net income. That's a measure of profit, the most final measure of profit, 91 and $93 million in their best years. In 2020, last year, the year of the pandemic, with no ticket sales for most of the year, $132 million in that income. Again, 91, 93 in the Attitude Era. 132 in the pandemic year of 2020, which was their biggest year ever for profit. Um, just to give you an idea, I, I think WU is significantly less popular than they were in the Attitude Era, but the nature of the economics is that they're making more money than ever. Um, and I would add to you, okay, that's sort of how this, the economic picture looks. But why does this stuff matter to wrestling fans? I mean, there's, there's probably no, I mean, well, I guess there is, there's a sports business journal. <laughs> there, there, there is a focus in media on, on the business of, of sports and in, in other areas of sports. But I think there's an, especially, there's a special interest when it comes to wrestling because I can go right now on the NFL.com and I can look up what the scores were for last week. I can look up what the standings are. Look at those numbers and wins and losses. I can look, look up who's, who's the leading passer in the NFL right now. Who's got the best completion percentage? Who's got the best QB rating? Um, those are hard objective facts that are not in dispute. Now, if I want to look at something similar for pro wrestling, as, as everyone knows, wrestling is a predetermined, uh, uh, pseudo sport. Uh, we can look up what the wins and losses are in cage match. Cage match is an awesome resource of match results. Those match results though are determined by a creative team, a booker, usually one person, usually with the name Vince or Tony, they decide who's going to win and lose. So wrestling fans are very passionate and they have their favorites or they have their opinions about what should or shouldn't happen, who should and shouldn't go over. And often what people want to do to, to look to see whether the creative decisions are, are justifiable or are the best business decision is to look at the business metrics. This is, you know, again, the wins and losses are, are, a, are a subjective decision. There really aren't stats in wrestling that are truly objective, except for the WrestleNomics, except for the, the business numbers. And I think we have, uh, the exciting and, uh, the important responsibility of essentially being the only scoreboard that is objective. And, um, you know, people can debate about whether, whether, uh, we're analyzing the numbers fairly or not, uh, whether we're missing something important. But, uh, I think, I think that's what we're doing here is we're the scoreboard for pro wrestling. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, when it comes to wrestlenomics, you, Brandon, I said it yesterday, you're, you're the brains and the brawn of it. I'm just, I'm just a guy that, you know, can kind of like steer this, uh, podcast ship. But from, from just from my perspective and being in wrestling for, it's going to be 10 years for me and independent wrestling in this uh, December, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated with the business side of things. 
and it, how the business does deals and, and all that and production and all that can really steer not only popularity for promotion, but what talent a promotion acquires and how much they grow. And we're an exciting era of pro wrestling where it's not just WWE, it's WWE, it's AEW, it's MLW, it's Impact a rebranding of ring of honor next year, new Japan pro wrestling and so much more stardom. And it's exciting to see these businesses grow. And the only way they do that is through TV rights deals and, 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 you know, partnerships and all that. And that's where WrestleNomics, WrestleNomics shows you the growth or maybe the decline of certain companies, but I think that's why, especially this is, I think WrestleNomics matters more than now than ever, I think, because of how pro wrestling is today. There's definitely been an, an increase in interest since uh, the introduction of AEW, because now there's all these comparisons that we can make. Um, just just to briefly, we'll talk about one more thing here. And we'll move on to the, to the quarterly report, but um, just to take the TV ratings, there's far less interest in TV ratings uh, in, in 2018 when... The only two, uh, yeah, Impact Wrestling was on Pursuit. Nobody could find, and still hasn't. I still haven't been able been able to find ratings for what Impact was doing on Pursuit in, in 2018. There was Raw and SmackDown on TV, and you could get those numbers through Showbiz Daily, and that was great. Um, maybe there was Lucha Underground, but um, you know, those those two programs were, were out there, and you could compare those programs to each other to themselves and. If you did did enough work and you looked in enough places, you might have been able to find a, the, the trends of TV overall to compare how Raw and SmackDown were, were declining versus the rate of TV overall. Um, but now, uh, since since the fall of 2019, we have had at least four TV programs, and really five if you include Impact, uh, that have all been on national TV at the same time. And we can compare the trends of those programs against each other. Um, and I think it's been especially interesting this is my opinion in a, in a time where we've had uh, until recently, at least an NXT that was not headed creatively by Vince McMahon and, and an AEW that's definitely not headed creatively by Vince McMahon and, com- and comparing how those shows are performing, uh, whether they're declining or a lot or a little or, or, or on the increase in the ratings uh, compared to Raw and SmackDown. So that's, uh, that's been very interesting to see. And I guess we could touch on this too. One, one reason why I think there's, an interest in WrestleNomics has to do with sort of a, a, one of the reasons why there's um, the existence of, of AEW is in, in it is that there's been for many years a lot of wrestling fans who would like to like WWE but don't, and they're disenfranchised and un, unsatisfied with the product, um, and they're hungry for an alternative. In many ways, NXT captured, captured that. Um, in many ways, AEW is capturing that, and I think there's a lot of fans. Uh, you don't have to agree with this sentiment, but there's a lot of fans who are eager to see when and when is there going to be a consequence for WWE being the way that it is creatively. Um, and as we, as we showed and mentioned, WWE is more profitable than ever than their most popular time. They are becoming, they, at least in the last five years, they became less popular, but what was the financial consequence of that? They became more profitable than ever. Uh, so people are searching for what I, what I've called sometimes economic justice or creative justice for the dissatisfying product that they perceive on, on Raw and SmackDown. Uh, and again, pro- more profitable than ever, but maybe there is a competition. Maybe there's a new competitor that's going to uh, cause some sort of consequence for WWE or will become increasingly competitive with WWE. And that is 
gradually happening. So anyway. All right. What now? So uh, moving on to the uh, crux of today's show, and we'll actually start with this here. Um, the likes of Ember Moon, Frankie Monet, Hit Rose, B-Fab, Grand Metalik, and Lindsay Dorado have been released from WWE, and more talents have been cut from the company as well. Both Fightful, Sean Rossap, and PW Insider reported that Keith Lee, Karrion Cross, Nia Jax, Mia Yim, Davey Boy Smith Jr., and Eva Marie have been released for the company. So 18 talents altogether, I believe, and these were obviously the highlights of those talents released, which this news was happening as, I believe, was it the conference call ended, or was the conference call happening? As this was starting was just after the conference call, call ended, just after because the conference I, I had call. started to do a live stream for patrons. And there was a fire happening in the background. Um, you, uh, I think we talked briefly on uh, Thursday that uh, I like I asked you about timing of this, and you said this was definitely probably planned out to where they would, yeah. Um, and then uh, that wasn't the. Do you have anything comment on this, or should we move on to the other big news? Um, I I would say. You know, we're hearing too that, um, some of these people were released because of their vaccine status or l- lack of getting the vaccine. Um, it sounds like nobody was told that in there. However, they were, it was communicated to them that they're no longer, uh, with the company. Um, but I, th- I think the, the Keith Lee release is the most interesting one. Um, I understand Grand Metalik and Lindsay Dorado asked for their release. Um, the Keith Lee is, is, is the one that stands out to me as what I, Reed is happening here is WWE saying, and I think we're, we're going to see this too with Johnny Gargano, Kyle Riley, Kevin Owens, whose contracts are reported to be up soon. We're WWE saying, we're not, we're not, we're not a wrestling company, of course. So what do we need wrestlers for? We can take people from other athletic endeavors, um, which, we heard a, a clip in our montage, uh, from, uh, from Nick Khan saying they, they're, they're looking at taking people from other athletic endeavors and building them up from scratch. And I think this, this ties perfectly into, into Vince McMahon's philosophy of not wrestling <laughs> that he doesn't value people who have a wrestling background. Um, full disclosure, I, I say this as a quote unquote indie wrestler, uh, but he, he doesn't seem to value people who have a, an indie background or a, a non-WE wrestling background. I think he wants to be able to take full credit of anyone's development. The notion that someone would be perceived to have been developed by anyone other than him, maybe including Paul Levesque, is a turnoff to him. Uh, so he wants full credit. So... Hey, the, if, if we can just pull people up from scratch here, that's better. Perhaps more importantly, or at least more economically, we don't want to create more of a bidding war for talent and run up the price of talent. That's not good for our business. So it's even better. Well, we have an even better justification to say we're not in the wrestling business and we're not interested in people who are already wrestlers before they, they arrive in our company. Uh, so let's not comp- compete for people like Keith Lee and Johnny Gargano and Kyle O'Reilly and Kevin Owens and Adam Cole, uh, and, and Brian Danielson and CM Punk. You, you want, you want these so-called, you want these quote unquote wrestlers, AEW? Here, go ahead, have them. 
We're not, we're not interested in wrestlers. We're interested in performers who we can turn into superstars and they just have to have certain ingredients. Uh, that's how I think they're thinking about it. I think too, one thing we've noticed that WWE has done over the last few years is integrated breaking news and, and, and all this happened from other media outlets other than WWE.com. So it's like ESPN reports and Sports Illustrated reports and Fox Sports reports that blah, blah, blah. And when they go out and get somebody like Gable Stevenson, that's going to make all those sports websites. Not necessarily would make websites if they go on the indies right now and, and sign like the hottest indie talent. Yeah, sure. It's going to be on PW Insider and Fightful, but you acquire a former NFL player, a weightlifter, an Olympic athlete. There's going to be more media coverage. And you know, they, they absolutely love that synergy of all the media companies, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think Vince, he likes positive mainstream media attention. Um, you know, he wants, he wants to transcend the wrestling business. Um, but yeah, you think about this historically, if we apply this philosophy backwards in history and we can quibble about whether that, whether that's appropriate or not, but it, it seems if you apply this philosophy to W's entire history, you would be missing out on Hulk Hogan. You'd be missing out, um, on Macho Man Randy Savage. You'd be missing out on Bret Hart, on Steve Austin. You probably still get the rock under, under this filter because he did not have a wrestling background before he came to WWE. Um, you would not be missing out on Kurt Angle or Brock Lesnar. They seem to, to fit this profile. But you would be missing out on a, at least two of the biggest stars, arguably the two biggest stars that you've ever had in your company. <laughs> John Cena, too. I mean, he mm-hmm. did was a wrestler before he got signed. Yeah, he's a. I think he's a borderline case. Yeah. 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 True. You probably still get Batista, right? Yeah. Yeah. You still get Randy Orton. You still get Roman Reigns. You don't get Triple H? <laughs> I suppose not. But he, he's, he's, he's got a, a wrong headed philosophy of wrestling anyway. He, he actually, <laughs> he actually descended into valuing indie wrestlers. So anyway, so there's that. Anything, anything more we should add to that? No, not, you know, uh, not too much where just like, there's so much more talent out there than ever. And we'll probably touch about on that a little bit later on in the show. Um, moving on to more big departure news. Uh, Christina Salen has departed the company as chief financial officer. She's going to be succeeded by Frank a Riddick, the third who has been named the new CFO and chief administrative officer. If that name sounds familiar, that's because Riddick served as a member of WWE's board of directors for over a decade. And he was the interim CFO in 2020 before Christina Salen took over. Yes. He was in the, the interregnum between, uh, between the George Berrios and Michelle Wilson era, they were dismissed as co-presidents in January 2020, right before the pandemic. And he served as the interim CFO until August 2020, when the Nick Khan and Christina Salen era began. Um, so, yeah, he was just pulled off the board of directors. He, he's been an independent member of the board of directors. And if you don't know, the, the board of directors uh, have a number of people on it who are also executives with the company, including Stephanie McMahon, Paul Levesque. Vince, of course, is the chairman. Um, but then it also has, uh, Nick Khan is also a member of the board of directors. Uh, but then it also has independent members who are, you know, they work full time in other jobs or they just, I think like Frank Reddick just seemed to be like retired former 
executives of major companies. Um, I don't know about major companies, but yeah, former, he was a former CEO of, of some, some sort of company. I don't know off the top of my head, but, um, yes. So I quickly read. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say about Christina say on the point I want to make, you brought up something in the quarter three Patreon uh, podcast that we did uh, that she seemed to only spend about a year at a company. And then yes. here we go. The next day after we do that, it like lined up with what you saw on LinkedIn. <laughs> so if you look at her, her LinkedIn profile, she, she's been the CFO, most notably of Etsy, which she was, she was a CFO for a number of years for Etsy, uh, which is the online retailer. Uh, but after that, she was the CFO for United Masters. She was a CFO for a company called Moda Operandi, which I think is a fashion company. She was CFO for those two companies after Etsy, United Masters and Moda Operandi for just over a year, a year and a few months for each of those. We are, we are now at the year and a few months mark for her at WWE. Um, I'd heard that, that a lot of people, uh, were not happy with her. There were a lot of employees in the finance department who were leaving the company, uh, purportedly because of her. Um, she was not well liked. Um, I mean, I, I heard one anecdote. I mean, this, this is not probably not overall representative, but, but sort of overall representative of, um, what people thought of her leadership style, I guess, in that before uh, employees went, went back to the office at Stanford in July, I believe uh, I, I gather before that, at some point uh, she gave sort of a town hall uh, speech to, to employees talking about how great it would be to be back at the office. She was giving this uh, talk from her living room on zoom. Uh, it's just things like that, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I guess there were a lot of other issues as well that were causing people to, to leave the company, at least in the finance department. Um, so there's that. Uh, she also made major hires that they put out uh, press releases for. Uh, she brought in Karen Mullane, who is the chief accounting officer for WWE. You see her name signed at the bottom of a lot of the SEC filings that WWE is putting out. Um, she was a former colleague of uh, Christina Salen, uh, either at Moda Operandi or United Masters. So this is someone that she worked with in the past, uh, the chief accounting officer. Uh, she also hired the general counsel, Samira Shah, uh, who is also a former colleague at one of her previous employers. So, um, this is often what happens. I mean, not just at WB, but in companies overall, you, you bring in people who, who you trust and you had great experiences with in the past. And that's what she did here. Does that mean that these, these employees are, are going to be long for this company going forward? I don't know. Um, but, yeah. uh, Frank Riddick's employment agreement though came out and, uh, Samira Shah is, uh, is the person who signs the, the signature block at the bottom. So she's at least around for that. Now, the, the, the interesting thing here is that, uh, if you look at Frank Riddick's employment agreement, which will, which I have some tweets about, um, he signed, so they disclosed this on Friday afternoon, uh, in the, in their SEC filings, uh, which they often do for their major executives. Uh, there's, there's one of these for Nick Khan that's public as well, but he signed this employment agreement on November 3rd, November 3rd is Wednesday. So, um, this was at least agreed to on Wednesday, uh, that Frank Riddick knew he was going to become the, the, the permanent CFO. And by the way, he is permanent this time, not interim. And, and this employment agreement makes it very clear. Um, so he's getting paid $150,000 as an annual base salary. He's getting a $1 million cash sign on bonus at the very beginning here. Uh, the employment agreement makes it clear that he has to work there for three years. Otherwise he has to partially at least pay this cash bonus back. 
depending on if you if he were to quit at at uh, you know early or in the middle or towards the end of those three years, he has to pay various degrees of, of the of the cash bonus back. So that makes it pretty clear that. He's not here for a sh- for a short time. He's here for a long time. He's here for at least three years if he wants to keep that one million dollars in cash. Um, there's similar terms for Nick Khan in uh, his cash bonus, which I think is I think is five million dollars cash. He has to stay for five years. I don't know if it's five million dollars cash. We we would have to look that up, but it's definitely a five year uh, term on the bonus. So Nick Khan pretty clearly intends to be there with WB for at least five years uh, from 2020. Frank Riddick pretty clearly intends to be with WB for three years, uh, from 2021. Um, yes, he's getting $5 million in equity right off the bat that, that SEC form four went out, uh, on Friday too, I believe $5 million in, in equity. Um, to compare to what Christina Salen was getting, which was also disclosed in 2020, she, she was getting a $730,000 base salary. Again, Frank Riddick getting $850,000 in base salary. Uh, Salen got half a million dollars in stock. Again, Frank Riddick got $5 million in stock. <laughs> so uh, Frank Riddick's getting compensated much more generously than Christina Salen is uh, for this. Take take that for what you will. I know, I know, I know uh, there were questions about, well, is, is Frank Riddick a more experienced uh Executive, I, I, I guess he's he's definitely older. Frank Riddick is not a young man. Uh, Christina Salen seems to be a, a, a younger person uh, that at least than Frank Riddick. Uh, he was the CF CEO of of his company, uh, which the name escapes me. Something Shale. So I don't know. Maybe, there's probably an argument that Frank Riddick is a more experienced executive, um, for whatever it's worth. So so, but I I think it's interesting. Again, he signed this agreement on. Wednesday conference calls on Thursday. So Christina Salem probably knows she's leaving the company after this conference call. Nobody's talking about that, that though. Uh, yeah. So that's interesting. She, she knew she was a dead CFO walking on, on that conference call. All right. Yeah. And, uh, I think, I think one of the reasons why Frank Rick may have gotten a bigger compensation package is probably because he was a willing to commit to the long term, and maybe Christina Sandling just wasn't willing. He's like, yeah, give me a year, and then you know this could have been on her own terms too. In the aspect of you know, we looked, you you brought up her LinkedIn, and other than that, see, it's very quick. So maybe Frank Rick's like, yeah, I'll I'll definitely stay here for three years plus. So yeah, who knows. All right. Uh, Maybe they had to talk. The thing is, too, I I bet Frank Rigg was probably harder to dislodge from whatever his lifestyle was. He seems to be somebody who's like in semi-retirement, an older man who's serving as independent uh, member of a board of directors. You look at his LinkedIn profile. He's probably doing other stuff, too. But um, to get him to come back to being a full-time executive was probably required more leverage is would be my guess. Whereas somebody like Christina Salen is very eager to continue to build her career because she's a bit younger, but yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, this, this is actually from John Pollock at post wrestling, our strategic partner. All, all um, of these, all these news bits, many of these news bits yes. are powered by the power of, of post wrestling's news updates, which we, we appreciate courtesy of them. On the same day that the company announced its latest cuts, WWE announced its third quarter earnings while upgrading its guidance projections. 
For the period covering July through the end of September, WWE was led by a return to live events with fans and generated $255,853,000 in revenue and posted a net income of $43,486,000 for the quarter. Those figures compare to the $221,595,000 and $48,278,000 for the same quarter in 2020 during the pandemic. For reference, expenses were lower for the prior year quarter um, due to two-thirds of the quarter's television being run out of the WWE Performance Center at a lower cost before moving to the Thunderdome in late August. Yes. So what Chris Gull just, just told us in, in, in plainer terms is that W now believes it's going to be more profitable. Did, did, did we cover that part here? Yeah, upgraded their guidance. So W is going to be more profitable than they were willing to say before this. That's largely due to the fact that they were able to run a large-scale international event which was not certain earlier in the year. So their, their last uh, earnings update was Q2, which, which happened in May. They reported that in May where it, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it was set in stone that they were going to go back to Saudi Arabia yet. Obviously they've, they've been there. They went there in October and they ran that event. They're going to get paid $50 million for that. So that's, that's no longer an uncertainty that happened. Uh, so that contributes to their certainty about what their financial state is going to be for the full year of 2021. So they raised uh, their, Adjust to EBITDA guidance uh, from I think it's something like 275 to to 310, and now they're saying it's well, it's going to be quite a bit higher than that, more like 310 to 330 or something like that. Um, we should we should make sure we we know exactly what that is. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's let's look at the earnings press release. So so in in, in essence, W is going to break its profit record again. That is that is the headline. Uh, from that, and it's they're going to be more profitable uh, than they thought they were originally. So, yeah, adjusted EBITDA. Let's see here. In January, did we? Uh, yeah, they they were projecting earlier. Adjusted EBITDA is their preferred magic profit metric. We focus here more so on net income because that's a real uh, accounting principle. But they they like to talk about uh, adjusted EBITDA where they just where they exclude things that they feel like excluding. Uh, but anyway. They were projecting 270 to 305 million dollars for the full year. They're changing that again, 270 to 305. They're saying, nope, it's going to be 305 to 315 million. So they're going to be even more profitable. Um, this, this time around, uh, for their profits, let's see. They reported what was the, uh, the, the, uh, net income again? Do we have that here? 43.5 million dollars in net income. Um, yes. Now, just to uh, congratulate ourselves here and, uh, to, and to congratulate you, the listener, for listening to such such a uh, accurate uh, uh, analysis of, of W Financials. So stock analysts uh, for every quarter who, who cover WB in addition to a lot of other companies, usually media companies, they put out their estimates and they put out their estimate of what they think WWE is going to report for the given quarter. Uh, the consensus analyst. So it's about 11 analysts. I think it's something somewhere around a dozen. Usually uh, they put out their reports. The, the average was expecting a 34 cent earnings per share. What is an earnings per share? Just think of it. Earnings per share, also known as EPS. Just think of it as a, as a way of measuring profit. If you want to know, it's, it's taking the, the net income 
think, think of net income as like your net pay after taxes. They take the net income, divide it by the number of diluted shares, the number of shares that there are uh, in WB, which is like 83 million. Take the, take the net, net income divided by all the shares. We get an earnings per share. Anyway, the average analyst expected 34 cents. I think the high analyst was somewhere in the upper 30s for EPS. WrestleNomics, though, the, the team here at WrestleNomics headquarters, we got together and uh, we put all our formulas together, did all of our math, and we got 56 cents per share. Uh, in, in our estimate that was, that was published in advance on, on wrestlonics.com. Um, and in the, in the end, what was the actual, I mean, far higher than any analyst, uh, was estimating. And in the end, the EPS, if we go to the trending schedules on corporate.w.com and we look here, the EPS for this quarter was 52 cents. Again, the average analyst expecting 34 cents, wrestlonics expecting 56. So we were, Quite a bit more accurate, a little high, but quite a bit more accurate uh, than 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 the stock analysts. Many of whom I will point out have Harvard MBAs. No, no Harvard MBA here. No, nothing but a philosophy degree behind this. <laughs> but uh, and we've been a little bit more accurate at times. Um, some, sometimes further off, but uh, yes. Uh, the. I, I, I think what happened is that the average analyst or the analysts, I guess all of them were maybe underestimating, um, the expenses, uh, for, for media, for, for producing their TV. Um, I, I was way off though on network revenue, which is something we'll, we'll adjust in the future. Um, just because it appears that even though Peacock is giving them the same amount of money, uh, in, in every period, it's probably escalating every year. It's a little bit more next year than it is this year and so on for this five-year deal with Peacock to have the network content there. Um, but Christina Salen made it pretty clear, if I'm understanding her right in Q&A, that they're, even though they're getting the same payments throughout the year, they're going to recognize different amounts of revenue relative to how prestigious, how big, of, how prominent the pay-per-views are in the quarter. So WrestleMania had this pretty big, how, how much revenue did they get uh, for the network in Q2, which is the WrestleMania court, $62 million, 62, yeah, $62 million. And now only $43 million in this SummerSlam quarter. Um, even though again, Peacock paying them the same. Um, but there is, there is still some subscription revenue happening there in the international markets. So that's a factor too, but it looks like they're, they're going to recognize different amounts of revenue, in different quarters, Relative to how, however, they're determining what the value of pay-per-views are. And, and I wouldn't dispute that WrestleMania is obviously far more valuable than any other pay-per-view. Uh, but yeah, that's something to think about in our estimates going forward. All right. We are did kind of cover, uh, I ran ahead. a lot of the top sorry. part of this. Yeah. No, sorry. Um, I'm not sure we've covered this so that, uh, with that, it comes in addition to 31 million return to shareholders over the quarter from a combination of the shareholder repurchasing program and the dividend payout. Uh, for the quarter, the company ran 38 North American events that averaged 8,320. And this was including SummerSlam at Allegiant Stadium with an average ticket price of $75.13. They also ran four international events in the UK that averaged 7,420 uh, fans with an average ticket price of $81.96. So the total attendance for the first quarter with live fans back in the arenas was 346,000. I, I, I should bring up too, and this has 
not that much to do with what's on the slide right now. But um, to to touch on budget on um, budget cuts, to touch on talent cuts again, as as we know, as was reported by multiple outlets, the reason cited for the talent releases were budget cuts. Obviously, as we're discussing here, W is a very profitable company. In this quarter alone, they made forty three million dollars in net income. Um, this is not a company that's having to cut costs to remain profitable. Um, they pay a dividend every quarter uh, of $0.12 cents per share. Um, that's normal, though. That's been the case for a long time. Uh, but they also participated in their stock buyback program. They bought back their own stock, which is supposed to help the price of the stock. Another way to return value to their shareholders, right? You make, their, you make your shareholder's stock more valuable by buying your own stock and running up the price of the stock. So the stock price, uh, they, they reported that they bought the stock price, uh, they, they bought shares, uh, back when it was somewhere in the fifties per share. Uh, so they were not buying it as high as $60 per share, which, which it was just before, uh, just before the earnings call. Um, but just to highlight, look, uh, this company's doing well financially, uh, budget cuts. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure we're, we're the cited reason, but it's more about like hitting a target so that the company can be more profitable. Um, I don't think this is a huge outrage, uh, as, People who have been following my work for a couple of years may remember uh, I, I wrote a, a quite opinionated piece around the time that uh, W made all these cuts early on in the pandemic um, when there was far more uncertainty about what the economic state of the country and the world was going to be. Uh, and not only did they cut talent, but more more importantly, in my view, they cut a lot of employees um, who, are, who are not making six figures uh, and who, who did not you know, maybe have as, as many options as, as talent did. Um, so there's that. Uh, yeah. So attendance, this, this average attendance of 8,320, which includes SummerSlam is the highest average attendance that I could find going all the way back to 2010. This is enormous. Uh, this is on, on the level of a WrestleMania quarter in average attendance, uh, skewed obviously by one huge event. Uh, but this is huge. And they obviously, they, they benefited from this, from the major SummerSlam event, which had something like 45,000 paid attendees, but also from just the pent up demand of the return to touring, especially in July. Uh, they returned to touring in the m- middle of July. I think July 16th was their first show back on the road in Houston. 14,000 attendees. Um, this, this is reflecting paid attendees, uh, not just people in the building. Um, but we were, we were able to at, uh, estimate this fairly accurately too, thanks to Russell Ticks, all the great information that's being collected by Russell Ticks. Um, I was a little low, so this gives us a good idea going forward of what the, uh, what the percentages of comps. Um, I was a little aggressive in my estimate of comps, so it'll be a little bit less aggressive going forward. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot lower in Q4 though. Some of the, the data that we're seeing from Russell Ticks so far in Q4 is not as encouraging. Uh, I think the pent up demand round is over with and the more normal era of, of, uh, live events is, is upon us live event division. So W's got three major divisions, media, live events, consumer products. Again, think of that as media, video, live video, live events, tickets, consumer products, it's merchandise and live events division has struggled to make a profit in non WrestleMania quarters in the last couple of years before the pandemic, uh, this quarter made a, a tremendous profit of, uh, we can look that up real quick in the training schedules. Uh, the live events division 
in operating income, which is how we're going to talk about profitability by division. Operating income for the live events division was $9 million. Uh, compare that to, you know, the most recent pre-pandemic quarters where they lost $200,000. They lost $3.5 million. They lost a million dollars in, in a good WrestleMania quarter in 2019. They made $12 million. Um, obviously driven by, by WrestleMania more than anything there. Uh, so a great profit for them in the live events division. I don't, I don't, I, I see WWE struggling to make a profit in this division, um, in Q4, even though they're going to have, um, these holiday tour events, which usually do well, uh, but we'll see. Um, I, I mean, obviously I, 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 th- I think it, it uh, tells you that maybe they should reconsider what their live event strategy is. Maybe they shouldn't run so many house shows. We can, we can debate that. Um, but this is not like a crisis that this division struggles to profit. Maybe it's just a loss leader. You have to run live events if you're a wrestling company. You have to run TV in front of thousands of people. Otherwise, your ratings are going to suffer, as, as we learned in, in, in the pandemic. So uh, they got to do this. If it's a loss leader, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, may, maybe there are ways to make this division more lean. Moving on. All right. Moving on. Uh so Nikon placed a heavy emphasis on the re-airing rights to Raw that come due in the back half of 2022, without being more specific, along with the shopping of the WWE Network's international rights, which seemed to infer the idea of licensing the network as it has with Peacock domestically. Now, Khan has stated that the rights to replay Raw belong to Hulu, who Khan feels will see NBC Universal sell their portion of Hulu to Disney as at its 2024 valuation, and that the battle for Raw's replay rate rights would be intense and fun. Intense and uh, fun. Yeah. We, so, we've talked about this before. We've, I think we've mentioned like 2B TV and other possible avenues that this re-airing rights could end up on. 2B TV, the, uh, the Fox fast free ad supported TV platform. Um, I, I, I can't remember if this is something that I broke. I think this is something that I broke months ago that the Hulu rights are coming up. And this is sort of a confirmation of that. Um, but here's Nick Khan. Here's, here, here's Nick Khan for those on watching on video. Uh, here's Nick Khan, uh, discussing the RIA rights. R-I-A. I, I discussed this with John Pollock, but I, I still don't remember. We all know what he's talking about, though. He's talking about the next day rights that are currently held by Hulu. Uh, so here's, here's him talking about this. In terms of the raw RIA rights, we know from the data that there is a substantial and recurring audience who watch the program via delayed viewing week to week on Hulu. When we closed the Hulu deal in 2018, the media landscape was quite different, as we all know. NBCU was an active owner of Hulu, and Peacock was just a nascent dream. We now all know that in a 2021 world, NBCU is a passive Hulu owner, and barring exigent circumstances, NBCU's stake will be bought out by Disney at Hulu's 2024 valuation. Let's keep in mind what we all know. In addition to Disney's initial Hulu ownership percentage, Disney picked up Fox's ownership stake in Hulu with Disney's acquisition of a large majority of Fox two-plus years ago. We also recently saw executive shifts from Hulu to Peacock, and we believe that in addition to all other platforms looking for event programming that resonates, that the battle for Raw's RIA rights will be intense and fun. Yes. So they, they view that look. The, the last time they dealt these rights, 
the streaming wars were not what they are now. And there's a lot more interest among many players to have uh, content like the next day rights to Raw and SmackDown. So potential suitors, who, who do you think might be interested in this, Chris Gullo, other than Hulu? Well, I mean, I already, you know, mentioned one before to be TV, um, which would be, which is Fox's, uh, streaming, uh, service that they've recently purchased. Um, other than that, I'm honestly, I'm going to throw one out there that's interesting. ESPN plus. I know that sounds kind of far left. You know, we haven't seen many dealings with Disney and uh, WWE, uh, but that ESPN plus could be something that could have those rights. I mean, even, even possibly even Amazon prime, but I would say when it's re-airing the next day, Peacock, Hulu, or to be TV would probably be the top three. Yeah. I, I've said before, I think this is, mo- these rights are most valuable to Peacock because they already have all the other content, uh, that, that come with the network. Uh, they get, they get the Raw and SmackDown episodes 30 days later. I imagine the viewership on 30 day old episodes of Raw and SmackDown is pretty low, but, um, they would be able to close the window, if you will. Um, so I think it's most, most valuable to them, but I could, see, I could see many, many streaming platforms having interest. Um, does WWE have heat with, ESPN. Um, there was a report, at least from, from Dave Meltzer, uh, and the Wrestling yeah. Observer that when the Peacock deal was made, this, this did not sit well with ESPN, uh, who had reportedly been very interested in, in the network streaming rights. Um, so, and that, that deal obviously didn't happen. Um, so yeah, I, I imagine we'll get a, a nice increase in this. We, I don't have a great sense of what this, this deal is worth currently. Somewhere in the ballpark of $10 million per year, maybe, maybe, maybe quite a bit less than that. Uh, I imagine we'll get a nice increase. Uh, this is small compared to their live, just to put this in context. Um, someone is texting me saying Roku might be interested as well. Um, Roku, of course, currently holds, uh, some, some rights to the library of, of New Japan. Um, well, they have the money to bid for that, though. I mean, I don't know how big Roku really actually is, but no, Roku's Roku's a tremendous company. Uh, what's what? Look up the market value of Roku. Okay, I'm just saying, looking to see what they have currently on Roku TV compared to these other streaming services. Mm-hmm. Um, the term of this, I want to think about too. Um, he's saying this. What, what did he, What did he say here? Exactly, the back half of 2020. 2022 they come due in the back half of 2022 i guess that means that's when they expire so you will get a deal made well in advance of the back half of 2022 um so maybe this is something that gets done fairly soon but anyway um i would think you want the new term to end uh when when the live rights end because maybe you want to make a deal you want to have flexibility with that deal when you're, when you're dealing live rights, maybe you want to make a deal with somebody, uh, where they get the live rights, uh, and, and maybe you want to play around with how you, you're, you're dealing them or somebody else the next day rights. So, um, no idea, but I would just guess that, uh, W wants this next deal to, to be expiring around September, 2024, which is when their live TV rights expire for raw and SmackDown. Do you have information to share with us, Chris Gallo? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I, I don't. Oh, for the you talking about the Roku value? Google, yeah, Google Market Capital yes, I, Roku. I, 
I got it. Yeah. Well, well, all right. So I'll do market capital. I had market value of Roku pulled up. But yeah, market capital. Um, first off, just uh, the closing stock price on Friday was two hundred seventy-eight. Uh, dollars and 62 cents per share. Uh, but that was, they crashed a little bit. Um, their revenue for 2020 was 1.78 billion. Uh, the, and the third quarter ending in September, they did 679 million, almost 680 million. What's their revenue. market cap though? Uh, that's the, that's, that's the value of all their shares combined. Here is, uh, I have macro trends on that pulling this up here. Google market cap uh, Roku. I got it. Thirty-seven point eighteen yes. billion. Yes. So yeah. So what's what's better, what's what's WE's market cap thought. roughly? What are you looking for? What's WE's market cap roughly? Uh, I'm here. This is an open book test. I'm 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 googling it. So WE <laughs> market capital. All right, there we go. Market cap capital again is just just the value of all the shares combined. Four four point six four billion. Yes. So I don't know. Who knows what their budget is like, but yeah, maybe they would have uh, some interest in that. Um, so let's see. Also, someone is also texting me. The person who was involved in bringing New Japan to Roku used to work for WWE Network. I think maybe is that Melody Han. I think that 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 that's the name that comes to mind related to that. Um, but anyway, we have another clip here to play from Nick Khan. Um, where this is, I think this is, nah, maybe this is moments later in the call. Where Nick Khan, as usual, he's like a professor here. I've said this is the Nick Khan podcast. He's, he's going to teach you some things about the media business, about the live rights business. And he's going to sort of lay it all out for you. He's going to give his master class in media rights. So here's, here's the clip of, of Nick Khan talking about sort of the outlook for WWE uh, when it comes to their live rights and just what's happening in the ecosystem overall. All of this is directly related to our next U.S. rights negotiations. We are as bullish now on those rights as we were when we went into the prior negotiations, which saw an increase in the U.S. from $130 million a year AAV to $470 million a year AAV for Raw and SmackDown. We have previously discussed numerous deals that demonstrate the continued rise in the value of live. These included recently negotiated media rights for the NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, the SEC, La Liga, and Wimbledon. Media rights that are coming up for renewal are also drawing interest from new buyers, which is expected to further the trend of meaningful increases for those rights. As an example, we know the English Premier League is looking to get $300 million a year annually for its U.S. rights, doubling the $150 million a year average annual value currently paid by NBCU. That bidding process is expected to be highly competitive, due in large part to the combination of traditional buyers and new buyers, like Amazon, ESPN Plus, and Peacock. They're all looking for live with dedicated fans to quickly build up their subscriber bases. Yesterday, Fox announced on its earnings call that they closed a multi-year deal with UEFA for its next two European championships in 2024 and 2028 and for over 1,500 soccer matches, a rights package in excess of what Disney currently pays for its portion of it. We have all read the rumors of Fox partnering with Fubo, a virtual MVPD, on this rights deal. With this sort of tonnage, that partnership made complete sense to us, creative and smart. Live continues to dominate linear while helping to build other platforms 
and we are seeing scripted content continue to migrate to streamers. Both Apple TV and Amazon have been considered front runners for the NFL Sunday ticket package. Ted Sarandos has publicly expressed that Netflix would rather buy than rent sports properties. He seemed to be referring to Formula One coming off of the success of their Drive to Survive program. So there's Nick Khan talking about who who are all these players who are potentially bidding for for live sports rights um, and what are the properties that are coming up. He points out in the most recent deal, the current deals that Raw and SmackDown are under right now in the U.S., they from the previous deal, they got a 3.6x increase. They got more than triple the value that they were getting before, almost quadruple. So that gives you an idea of the trajectory. That's the direction it's going. These rights are not just doubling. Sometimes they're tripling, sometimes quadrupling. Um, he's pointing out that the EPL just got, the English Premier League just got their rights doubled. Um, and the, the big, the big speculation that people who own these live properties are excited about is the notion that Amazon might get interested. They, they are among the richest companies in the world. ESPN Plus, the Disney-owned company, might uh, have interest in, in WWE. They certainly have interest in sports. Uh, and Peacock. He talks about how Fox and FUBU are partnering together. Uh, I think he was talking about UEFA there. Um, and I think as, as a sports business journal has reported, I think this is from, from Nikon's friend John O'Rand, uh, Apple and Amazon supposedly have interest in Sunday Ticket. Um, I am more skeptical than I was a few months ago that the tech companies, the fangs, Chris Gold, do you know what the fangs are? Yes. Tell me what the fangs are. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. There's there's two A's though. It's F-A-A-N-G. Oh. Apple. Apple. Yes. yes. Let's see if I can do it fast. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. But anyway, the, the, the idea is that, oh wow, these these are the most wealthy companies in the world. Maybe if they have interest in live sports, look out because then the then the the price for live content is going to really skyrocket even more than it already is. Um, are they really interested in the Sunday ticket? Maybe. Uh, Amazon has obviously got rights to Thursday night football, uh, and I think they're going to be become an exclusive home of Thursday night football in in, in years to come um, as part of the deal that's already uh, agreed upon. Um, I don't see any of these new companies having interest in live sports in the U S markets, in the international markets. I know soccer and tennis, Amazon is, is doing business internationally, but, but in the U S where these rights are the most expensive, uh, I don't, I don't see Amazon or any other tech player really getting involved yet. I'm, I'm saying as far as things that have actually happened, not, not outlook, um, NBA deal, has come and gone. NHL deal is coming on. MLB deal is coming on. And they didn't go to, to new, new tech players. I don't see I mean, only one thing, one more thing. I don't see Apple having, I, I think Apple, I, I keep, maybe I, I'm just, uh, when I listen to the recode podcasts, I, I keep hearing their land of the giants promo where they keep playing the sound bite about how some, someone's saying Apple doesn't want to win the streaming wars. I think they want to be extremely well regarded for their taste. If that's true, I can't see Apple getting involved in pro wrestling, even though wrestling can be a high taste product. What were you going to say? 
Well, first of all, I'll comment on, on your Apple thing. Yeah, they, they have really gotten behind doing critically acclaimed TV series that dramas, big actors, more than just trying something out there like the other ones. But um, what what I was going to say earlier was the NFL package is pretty much done too, just not the Sunday ticket. We just had the new NFL rights deals come yeah. down. So it's just the Sunday ticket that would be, would be up there. And that's just something that would be migrating away from direct TV to wherever it goes. And who knows? I mean, I mean, direct TV might make the last minute play, but it probably is more financial for NFL to go on a streaming. Yeah. The big picture though. I, it might, might sound like I'm being pessimistic. I, I think W is still in a really good position to get a, a nice increase in their TV rights fees. Uh, uh, again, we're still in a position where a lot can happen between now and 2023, perhaps when it, when a deal for Raw and SmackDown gets done. Uh, we're still, you know, a year and a half or something away from that time. But, uh, no, I see there's, there's a, a struggle f- and a, and a, and a strong desire for live content. And as, and as much as, as I've talked about in this program about how W's popularity has been on the decline, um, that, that regardless, they're still among the most popular programs on television, especially with viewers 18 to 49. And that goes a long way. Uh, that's not the only factor that, that plays into what their value would be, but that's a big factor. Um, and they're still doing really well. In that regard, they're among the most popular. I, I, I did these studies over the last couple of months. If you exclude football from the picture, both pro and college, among the most popular programs easily is wrestling. WWE, Ross Smackdown, Dynamite. Those are the among the top two programs on TV in 18 to 49 after um, football and maybe the NBA. Um, so, yeah, there's Talking Dead in there. Talking Dead. Walking Dead. Uh, there, there's maybe Rick and Morty in there, I think we found. Uh, maybe one or two others, but it's really wrestling after, after NFL and maybe NBA. I mean, there's, we're certainly seeing AEW outperforming in NHL in the same time slot of, of late. Uh, and there'll be playoffs do well, uh, also. So there's that. We have one more Nikon clip to play. Do you have something else? Yes. No, no, no. I'm just, I was going to lead into the NXT Nikon clip. Oh, with you. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Lead, lead, in, lead into it. Tito. What I was just going to say is obviously something that has happened with, uh, you know, uh, pretty much the, uh, would, would say it was the end of the third quarter, uh, or did it start right in the beginning? The, of the NXT 2.0 quarter? happened in, I believe, September 14th or 7th. So v- very much towards the end of Q3, but in Q3. Yeah. So, yeah. So this would be the first, uh, you know, uh, conference call of the quarterly endings with the NXT 2.0 rebranding. Mm-hmm. And here's what Nick Khan had to say about that. Yeah. And then I wanted to focus on NXT a little. This is Brandon Ross. Um, you definitely made some changes over, I think, the last month or so. Wanted to see how you felt about the, um, the progress and whether you felt like you were achieving the goals of the rebound. We, we think it's all starting the way that we wanted it to start. So we wanted a younger, fresher uh, in-ring approach. We think we have it. You've already seen some talent from the new NXT elevated to the main roster. Uh, there's going to be more of that. Our recruiting efforts, which you know we can go through at a later date, which are spearheaded by Paul Levesque and Bruce Pritchard and, and a number of other folks here, uh, are focused on young athletes who may not at this moment in time be in the quote-unquote wrestling space. And we think all of those results will come to fruition in the right way. 
and that NXT will continue to build the way it's already building. There you go. I I, I notice when I analyze things, sometimes I'm, I'm prone to talk about the medium more than the message sometimes. Um, before we talk about the content of what he just said, I think it's interesting how uh, they... He, he's, he's so careful to, whenever he's using the word wrestler, wrestling, to talk about the quote-unquote wrestling space, so-called indie wrestlers, because he knows the man is sitting right there listening um, who, who does not believe in, in wrestling. Um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think Nick Khan is a very uh, savvy servant uh, for, for Vince. Um, but anyway, everything's great at NXT. I mean, it's, it's okay. Uh, you know, I've... I've been told, and there's been other reports that have supported the, uh, this, the, the, the fact that, that NXT, uh, their goal with this rebrand, among other things, is to attract a younger audience, 18 to 34. So, uh, let's, let's take a look for people watching on video. Here's a chart just showing the year over year trends, the green line, you know, very much in the neighborhood of, of where they were last year at the same time last year. This is 18 to 49. So this is the key demo, right? I mean, this is not, it's not like it's collapsing. Um, but NXT is definitely not having the benefit, uh, in its viewership that it, that it, that it, uh, that AEW is having on Wednesday night, the big deal for, for dynamite. Now there's a lot other factors, almost certainly that, that are helping dynamite's viewership. Dynamite's viewership year over year is some 20%, maybe sometimes 30% up in certain comparisons. Uh, NXT's viewership is is very comparable to where it was last year, uh, despite NXT no longer having to go head to head with AEW Dynamite. They're on a different night. Uh, that signals to me that th- th- this this show is just less important to people um, now. I think what drives a lot of the the, the check in viewership, a lot of the spikes in viewership for all of these wrestling programs is, oh, did something big and newsworthy? happen. And the people who are checking in and out are the younger viewers. The most stable audience is, is, are the viewers outside the demo, the vast majority of which are, guess what, 50 years old and older. Um, and this is a, again, a, a TV show that's repackaging itself. We want to attract younger viewers and this median viewer is not getting any younger. Uh, early on in the, uh, the rebrand, they did a median age viewer of 62, which was the highest that I, I've only been tracking this since May, the middle of May, but that's the highest I've ever seen until to mention quickly this past Thursday when impact with it, with its volatile small sample scored a 63, 63 year old median viewer <laughs> for impact wrestling on access TV Thursday night. But anyway, yeah. Uh, NXT median age linear TV viewer watching live in same day is in their late fifties. Sometimes 60 years old. On one occasion, 62. Uh, Raw and SmackDown are in the late to mid 50s. Uh, AW Dynamite is 50, sometimes late 40s. Rampage is a bit younger in the late 40s more consistently. Maybe because it's later. So there you have it. Anything to add to that? Uh, I mean, and not necessarily like, uh, you know, I mean, I've the NXT rebrand, I've, I haven't been the biggest, uh, proponent of it. <laughs> um, but clearly this is a vision of, you know, the, who's in charge right now. So yeah, it's, it's, and- it's, it's finally paying attention to his talent development in NXT. Um, so 
we could talk about about the nature of TV rights or media rights for a moment. Um, something I've been trying to think about, I've been meaning to talk about this on, on, on our podcast here for a few weeks. We just haven't gotten to it and this is a good time to get to it. Um, I think what, you know, what you could say this, what we've been seeing, what we saw in the last completed round of TV rights for WWE, uh, versus the round before that was that the deal got more complex a bit in the 2014 deal. Raw and SmackDown were just sold to NBC universal. Right. And Raw and SmackDown aired on USA Network. SmackDown was on sci-fi and then it was moved to USA Network. Right. One distributor owned the Raw and SmackDown rights. They also, during that term, increased the value to their credit. Um, you criticize WWE for a lot of things. They diminished their popularity over the years, but they did do something that was really good for their financial state, which was they did, did the brand split as much as you know, I, I could say creatively, I don't like the idea of a brand split. I want there to be one funnel where there's one champion, et cetera. But they did a brand split and that increased the viewership of SmackDown in large part because they put it on better time slots and better networks and eventually made it live on Tuesday uh, on the USA Network as opposed to like Friday on on sci-fi. So that's a big factor that helped their viewership. But But besides that, that's part of it. But besides that, they gave SmackDown its own exclusive roster, which it didn't have before July 2016. SmackDown was a much more missable show because you could see the same talent on Raw, and it was uh, clearly a, a program with a higher priority Raw was. But after the brand split, they you you had separate talent, separate rosters. Better time slot, better network. They made this more highly viewed. They made this less of a missable program, SmackDown. Uh, so going into those T-Rice negotiations that were completed in 2018 that went into effect in the fall of 2019... Nick Khan, not yet the president and CRO, but someone working for CAA, a talent agency, helps the WWE make this deal where he said, well, let's not just maybe sell both of them to NBC Universal. What if, kind of like the NFL, we sold different products to different distributors and we sell raw or uh, yeah, we sell raw to NBC Universal, who have who have held this program since 1990. Well, with the exception of Viacom, uh, have held this program since 1993, with a with a brief exception. Uh, and then maybe we split off SmackDown and put that to the open market, which they did. And of course, Fox bought SmackDown, uh, and and WWE made more money that way in their TV rights fees than they would have otherwise if they would have sold Raw and SmackDown to NBC Universal. Um, the number is, is, is out there in the Hollywood Reporter. I think they were going to get something like $300 million average annual value if they were going to sell to Raw, sell Raw and SmackDown to NBC Universal. But now they're getting, between the both of them, $470 million average annual value. So by, you know, if, it's, it's like if you, you know, if you buy something in bulk, you get it more cheaply for you. You get a better deal if you buy, buy more of a product oftentimes, right? You buy it wholesale. But if you buy smaller quantities, you might have to pay more for that. Uh, so that's kind of what they're doing here. They're selling a smaller quantity to to NBC Universal. They sold a, sold another quantity to Fox well, with SmackDown, and they got the benefit of being on a higher reach platform, which is very important to them. Another reason why I'm kind of skeptical that it, that a digital platform will be like the the exclusive live distributor of of W content because I'm not sure that the discovery and the, and the reach is strong enough. But anyway, I digress. Maybe in the next round, the deals even more complex. We're talking about next day Hulu rights here. As I said earlier, I think it, it would, it's something that they may do that they may make sure that that whatever, whoever gets the Hulu rights 
those, that deal expires September 2024, aligning it with the live rights so that they have all the flexibility, uh, they can get in terms of how they're going to deal the raw and SmackDown rights. Maybe, maybe the, the, the live, maybe there's a live traditional component to this. Of course, there will be to some degree. Maybe there's, um, some sort of digital live component to it too. Maybe Peacock gets live rights to certain episodes of Raw. I'm just fantasy booking here. Maybe, uh, who knows if, if the SmackDown, whether or not SmackDown stays on Fox is, is the biggest question, right? NBC Universal is so, uh, involved with WWE. It's hard to see Raw leaving NBC Universal because they're, they're involved with Peacock. They're involved with NXT. Uh, they're involved with Ms. and Mrs. But, um, yeah, it's maybe, maybe there's, ESPN Plus would be interested in SmackDown, you know. Maybe there's certain episodes that uh, w- would air on the traditional platform, certain episodes that would air on the digital platform without making it too complex for the for the viewers to figure out. But that's some, something to think about in some way that WWE may drive higher rights fees in this upcoming round. Um, I mean, D- WWE is almost the last major form of sports, if you would call it in that, that, that ESPN plus doesn't have, they are now, you know, we know about the deal, especially in the combat sports world. We know about the deal with UFC, but now they've been uh, airing boxing, big boxing events on ESPN plus as well. Um, and we talk, you know, they have rights to the NHL. They have partial rights to the NFL, partial rights to the NBA, partial rights to the MLB. Like mm-hmm. it, it would be their last major, I think, and they have soccer rates too. So yeah, it would be their last major big thing. Yeah. And, and as we talk about this for this complexity of the rights, perhaps being the case for WWE, I think this applies just as much to AEW, uh, whose deal is probably up around the same time, depending on the option, whether or not the option is uh, picked up by Warner media. Um, and, and this is something that maybe AEW deals as well. Some sort of live, uh, digital rights in some capacity. Uh, so that's that's something I'm thinking about. I, I just don't want to be sitting here talking about live traditional TV rights for for months and months and months on end, and then all of a sudden, boom! Oh, we never saw that coming. That they, oh yes, such as this, there's a peacock component of of this, you know, Raw and SmackDown deal or something. So something to keep our eye on. Um, shall we fantasy book a bit more? Yes, I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> okay. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um. I don't know how we should set this up. There's a number of, of angles to approach this with. Um, as we talk about all these distributors, all these m- big media companies that may be players for wrestling rights, um, NBC Universal has their wrestling, Raw, NXT, Peacock, uh, W Network. Warner Media has their wrestling, AEW. Um, Sinclair is kind of a minor player here, but they kind of have their wrestling. Uh, Anthem, kind of a minor player, but they have their wrestling. Um, ESPN doesn't have their wrestling though, right? No. Viacom. No. <laughs> Viacom used to be in the wrestling business when they had, um, Raw on Spike and they had Heat on MTV. Viacom doesn't have their wrestling. They have their MMA. ESPN has their MMA, but they don't have the wrestling. And if, and if wrestling is as popular as I say it is relative to other live content, um, live viewing anyway, um, Maybe that's, maybe that's something that they would be interested in. Um, Paul Levesque, if, if, if you're, li- if you're listening, this is, this is your pep talk, man. It's time to play the game. It's time to play the game. You've been playing the game since 1995. It's been going pretty well. 
until last year or two. And uh, Vince McMahon has refuted your vision of wrestling. He, he, he thinks you're a fool for embracing quote unquote indie wrestling and not hiring tall, muscly, muscly people like yourself. Come on. Um, so I, I, I don't know what, what your flexibility is uh, contract wise or uh, how, how willing you are to, um, to, uh, to break the loyalty pack with the family. But I suggest that you, that you check out uh, season two or maybe the last episode of season two of succession. Check out what Kendall does there. Um, I, I think there's a great opportunity as we discussed in the previous episode. We discussed a bit, I discussed a bit with John Pollock. Uh, I think there's a great opportunity for Pollock to, if he had the flexibility, if he had the legal ability to, uh, be the, this is not, not arguing that this is going to happen, but this is a real opportunity. I think if he had, uh, some really wealthy financial backing, maybe somebody like Mark Cuban, who has not only wealth, but a great deal of skill and connections in the media and sports business. Seems like Mark Cuban would fit that bill. Um, there were, you know, there's talk that Mark Cuban would maybe have some interest in New Japan at some point that has not come to fruition. Um, and I think, uh, as John Paul pointed out in our talk, you know, wrestling smarts actually matters too. And that's one way that, that Tony Khan has been really valuable to, to, uh, to his company. Not only is his family very wealthy, not only did he have a lot of connections in the sports and media business, but he's somebody, somebody who studied the wrestling business really closely, never worked in the wrestling business before this, but he studied it really closely. And by God, that ended up mattering. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, you can criticize Paul Levesque, but he, maybe he had some handcuffs on him to some degree, but, uh, he built a really successful brand. NXT that in many that that I'll I'll tell you you can listen to to, to George Barrios and Vince McMahon's own public words about this about how they were maybe they're just giving happy talk but how surprised they were that this brand NXT emerged as this really popular thing um, and maybe if if the main roster was more satisfying to audiences generally uh, maybe there wouldn't have been as much of, a, of an opportunity for NXT but nonetheless NXT became this thing that became a real ticket seller uh, did not turn into a very valuable media property by all indications that I can see, but it became the most popular program on the network, at least for a time. And it became a hot ticket, uh, at least when it came to takeovers. Yes. In pairing with main roster pay-per-views, uh, sometimes not, not though. And it, it became uh, something that they felt was worthy of taking on the road with national tours, not just in the Florida loop. But, but anyway, I think they did something that, that was genuinely meaningful and genuinely impressive and successful. Paul Vec, that's to his credit. Uh, he built a lot of relationships, uh, has a lot of, uh, uh, of, a, of a credible track record as a, a result of that. And there's clearly some, some homes in the big media world that would maybe have some interest in wrestling. Question is, is, is who's the financial backer of this? I don't know. I don't, I don't think Paul Vec himself is, is wealthy enough. Um, I would like to, to just discuss the, the brief history of WWE's family and, and, and corporate history. Just, it seems that we're on, on sort of a, a conceivably a, a precipice of, of the sort of the co corporate power structure of this company where, um, in 2008, George Barrios and Michelle Wilson joined the company. They would become, end up becoming co-presidents. Linda McMahon in September 20, uh, 2009 resigned as CEO and kind of started her political career. That's also around the time in October 2009 when Shane left. And Shane apparently had this kind of rift with Vince. They, they kind of made clear it was a rift <laughs> in his interview with Mick Foley years ago. And there's that very interesting, fascinating uh, Vice article, I think, by um, first name Ian was the author, uh, who talks about how Vince, how uh, Shane presented this pitch to try to take over creative in this really sort of interesting palace intrigue scene. 
But anyway, she ended up leaving the company, tried to do other things, uh, in, in the business world that I, it, it's hard to tell how successful they've been. Uh, but, but Shane had a lot of capital, a lot of cash that he, uh, was able to get a hold of through liquidating W stock that was gifted to him, uh, by Vincent Linda. So to the tune of, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars without looking it up. I don't know that, uh, Polovec has the required amount of wealth. I'm sure he's a very rich man, <laughs> but I don't know that he has the, the required amount of wealth or whether he wants to go through the, uh, the, the familial pain that, that might, uh, result from, from going his own way. But, uh, but yeah. And he's, uh, he had his title changed. He, he joined, uh, as a, he formally joined as a, a corporate employee in 2010, then had his, uh, position elevated in 2011 to become executive vice president. Um, his title changed a bit, including in 2020, when he was changed from being the executive vice president of talent, live events, and creative to becoming the executive vice president of global talent strategy and development, uh, until then, September 2021. Uh, just, just coincidentally, when he just happened to have a cardiac event, uh, you know, he's, uh, apparently, to my view, been, been sort of dethroned here, uh, from, from the NXT, uh, leadership. So there's that. You have thoughts on this, though? Yes. Um, we were we were kind of talking uh, before, uh, you know, off air uh, about, and you put the question out on Twitter of what, you know, uh, maybe very rich people would uh, have an interest in pro wrestling, and there is a lot of, you know, that aren't currently involved in the business, and there is a lot of celebrities that like pro wrestling, but. The, the values of net worth and all that just really wouldn't be there unless they got together a group and whatnot. But one name that comes interesting to me is LeBron James. He is a wrestling fan. Net worth is all about 850 uh, million. It's almost a billion. Um, he's been in like different ownership groups, uh, for other things. So he could be someone that would maybe get together a group. Um, but to your point, I think and if a third billionaire or just a third major, you know, wealth source does get involved, this is the best time to do it. The talent pool is huge out there. It just seems almost every month there's another group of 15, 20 talents. And we saw in, this last two weeks alone between the Ring of Honor roster and the WWE releases, like 50 plus talents are, yeah. are out there. Um, but in triple H, obviously he's a type of guy that, you know, like I feel like a billionaire would really feel comfortable putting a, his money in his hand, their money in his hands because of where he comes from and his track record. I don't know if anyone else could just, approach a billionaire right now and go, Hey, let's get into wrestling business and then be really on board for it. Cause you gotta remember Tony Khan was a wrestling fan. Yeah. So complete. He, he's he's the creative scenario. and the business in one. Yeah. He's, he's the back. Nobody had to convince him. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, he had to convince his dad, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, but so, you know, but I mean, does some type of, you know, wealthy person that sees how TV rights deals are and the trending upwards of the income that you could receive and get involved. I, I said it, and this is before we knew Sinclair's loss in the third quarter. I said it before that. I was like, I was surprised that a company like Sinclair didn't put more into the wrestling business, but clearly it's their whole business that they just, that they didn't want to take the risk. And I don't think they had the vision. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know that they would. Lavi made the point that I don't know that they. Lavi Margolin made the point that I, I don't know that they would play well with others in the media industry, which who they would probably have to cooperate if they went <laughs> further uh, in terms of media distribution. Um, but yeah. I, I, th- I think I, I do think honestly, this is something that's it's yes, it's certainly just 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 fun to think about. It would make our job more interesting, obviously. Uh, but I think there's a, a legitimate good economic pitch, like financial opportunity here. Um, because of, as you mentioned, the talent is more available now than it's been in a long time. All of that talent has been released now have increased exposure from being on, on WWE media platforms in one form or another. Um, there's a lot of talent available. Um, Triple H is somebody who would fit this sort of, uh, creative leadership and talent leadership role well, both because of his experience and his, you know, I, I think very, very arguable success with NXT. Um, and, the value of live sports is tremendous and growing. And it's not quite like starting the XFL, starting another wrestling company is not the same as starting the XFL or starting another basketball league in terms of like, that's, there's a weakness there in that people want to watch the major one. There's some truth to that, but, but wrestling is kind of this weird hybrid of, of sports and scripted entertainment too. And I think there are different flavors to hit different fans with. Um, obviously there's a vast variety of scripted entertainment that is somewhat similar to one another. Um, so I think there's, in other words, I think there's space for at least two and perhaps three major wrestling companies. Uh, and I think there's a tremendous amount of revenue to generate from, from media rights fees over the long term. Um, yeah, I, and and I think another thing you get with the triple H is, We've heard the rumblings. Oh, he's a Vince guy. He's a Triple H guy. She's a you know a Vince you know a Vince talent. You know Triple H talent. There's going to be talent that probably you know believe in the vision of Paula Beck and may not resign with WWE and would go to like some company if he was in charge or you know not sign with AEW or maybe jump for even AEW uh, when their contract is up. So I think people, you know, here's a guy that put a lot of impact on a lot of people's lives. We hear every so many people talk about Triple H, <laughs> like, you know, oh yeah, Triple H was great, instrumental bringing me in this and that, you know. And he, from 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 my ex- experience with my with friends and acquaintances that have had that experience of being signed on there or just getting opportunities. He does communicate with talent. Like he's not insider Chris Gullo with his insight. You're, you're, you're not talking to somebody through yeah. It's like, Oh, by the way, triple H told you keep, keep your emails open. No, it's triple H saying, keep your emails open. You know what I mean? Keep your dates open. We're going to talk like, yeah. I mean, I think, know. I think it's evident through public statements that people make when they leave the company, they, they often thank triple H and they don't thank Vince probably because they didn't have much of a relationship with Vince, but they did with Paul Levesque. Yeah. So uh, yeah, just my, my point is, is that you're getting that too. You're getting a guy who could persuade talent that might normally not want to take a risk on, Oh, this new upstart company, you know? And I think he's, that's he's what got, W brought to the table with Jericho. Oh, well, if Jericho went there, hmm. you know, it, it brings credibility that, Oh, th- this person of, of, uh, who has a huge name, he's worth following. Maybe if he believes in it, I, I, I can believe in it too. Um, but I think, you know, not just track record, but having the relationships and having the name value. Yeah. 
if, if Triple H is involved in it, maybe this is real. Wow. Again, long shot. Probably not going to happen. But Paul, if you're listening, you can do it. Believe you yourself. would, you, he would make for us even so much. How imagine how much busy your life would be if it's third major company? Yes. Oh, and your poor Twitter notifications. It's it's fine though, because more overwhelming they get, the less I, I I read it, I guess, or something. But yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Twitter, uh, Alfred Kanawa did report fast nationals. There were no fast nationals last week for SmackDown. And Rampage, even though SmackDown was on, on FS1, uh, SmackDown back, back on Fox, um, the Fast Nationals for Rampage, Friday night, 10 p.m., uh, according to Alfred Conowa of Forbes, 556,000 viewers total. In the demo, 267,000 viewers. Uh, SmackDown, this, the Fast Affiliates showed the same thing, but the SmackDown number, uh, 1.98, I'm sorry, 1.978 million viewers, 663,000 uh, in the demo. Um, based on recent differences between the Fast Nationals and the Finals, this is what I expect for the Finals. Finals are always a little bit higher uh, for both programs. Um, I would guess somewhere around 2.1 million viewers for SmackDown. This could be, I mean, in terms of a, of a Fast affiliate, this was the lowest Fast affiliate in months. So this could be the lowest SmackDown in months, but it's the lowest. It's probably going to be the lowest SmackDown in weeks, at least. Um, Rampage looking like it's going to do around 580,000 viewers and maybe something like a 0.22 in the demo. But we'll find out for sure Monday afternoon. All right. And with that, uh, this super pack show mm -hmm. is fading to a close. Mm -hmm. Uh... Am I going to do a, we, we, I will do a live TV ratings talk Thursday evening, afternoon, 5.30 PM Eastern live on the WrestleNomics YouTube channel, which you should subscribe to and press thumbs up on every video in there. Uh, I have a Patreon. WrestleNomics has a Patreon, patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, where just for $5 a month, you can get TV ratings reports nearly every weekday because that's the nature of the wrestling media ecosystem at this point. There is a nationally televised wrestling program on television nearly every day. And I write a TV ratings report for each one of those. You also get access to the WrestleNomics viewership spreadsheet, this enormous research or resource of wrestling TV ratings across all sorts of demos. Uh, all that data you get access to yourself in the form of a Google sheet, plus lots of other content. Again, Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Join the hundreds of others who have already signed up, including very intelligent members of the wrestling industry. Um, plugs for you, Golo. Yeah, well, just, just to go back to the Patreon, think about this, folks. For just a little under 17 cents a day. He's doing the math. <laughs> yeah, 17 cents a day. Wow. It's one of the most affordable Patreons out there. And... Probably the bang, bang for your buck, for sure. Um, but yeah, for me, uh, Chris Gello on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, 
Upcoming, uh, looks like we just got done with Excite Wrestling. Uh, I'll be at ESW Wrestle Bash on November later this uh, month, November 27th, I believe. Other than that, November's pretty free, so stay tuned if, if I pick up something here or there. Um, RTI Pod on Twitter, as well as Rediscovering Indies on Facebook and Instagram. That's my podcast with Jonathan Ash of GoPro Wrestling. Uh, he, uh, he and I break down independent wrestling topics once a month. We are doing a deep dive in the NWA uh, title and and really, the, a lot of the main business of the NWA from 2007, which is the end of the TNA era, to 2017, which was when Billy Corgan purchased the Right City NWA. Part three just came out a, a couple weeks ago. Listen to that; it's very interesting. Um, you know, people for you know people talk about the Adam Pierce, Cole Cabana, Best of Seven series a lot, but what people don't realize that that was. The match seven was right when Bruce Darp took over and neither of them were going to be NWA champion because Bruce Darp had a different vision. Plus Bruce Darp's relationship with New Japan and so much more. So check that out. RTI pod rediscovery and these were available on most uh, podcast platforms. And as we wrap up this program, it is just after 1 p.m. Eastern, which means the Buffalo Bills are taking on the Jacksonville Jaguars. Go Bills. Yeah. Go uh, you, can, go, you can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston and at WrestleNomics. You can go to WrestleNomics.com and get uh, lots of info and resources and articles about the wrestling business like you've never seen before. Um, yeah, I think that's all. Uh, I'm Brandon Thurston. I'm Chris Gillow. We'll talk to you next time.